production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC and the Raskin Family Fund, with additional funding from Robert Conrad, Cleveland State University, the Chautauqua Institution, the Cleveland Clinic, and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated. Good afternoon and welcome to the City Club of Cleveland. I'm Robin Minter Smyers, a partner at Thompson Hine and the president of the City Club's Board of Directors. It's my distinct pleasure to introduce today's speaker, the United States Attorney for the Northern District of Ohio, Justin Herdman. If you don't know, the U.S. Attorney for the Northern District of Ohio is the Chief Federal Law Enforcement Officer for Ohio's Northern 40 Counties tasked with enforcing a wide range of criminal and civil statutes, including the prosecution of crimes involving public corruption, civil rights, drug trafficking, fraud, human trafficking, and firearms crimes, among other violations. Mr. Herbman took over as the U.S. Attorney for the Northern District of Ohio in August of 2017 after receiving bipartisan support from Ohio Senators Rob Portman and Sherrod Brown and being unanimously confirmed by the Senate via a voice vote. Immediately prior to his appointment, Mr. Herbman was a partner at Jones Day, where he represented businesses and individuals under investigation. His career also included posts as Assistant U.S. Attorney in Cleveland, serving as Deputy Chief of the National Security, Human Rights, and Organized Crime Unit. In this position, he prosecuted a number of terrorism cases, including the case of five activists who plotted to blow up the Ohio 82 Bridge spanning the Cuyahoga Valley National Park in 2012. He also served as the Assistant District Attorney in New York City, prosecuting a wide range of violent crimes and identity theft cases under notable District Attorney Robert Morgenthau. He serves as Judge Advocate in the United States Air Force Reserve and is a former intelligence officer in the United States Navy Reserve. He earned his Bachelor of Arts from Ohio University, his Master's of Philosophy from the University of Glasgow, and his JD from Harvard Law School. Ladies and gentlemen, members and friends of the City Club, please join me in welcoming to the stage Justin Herdman. For that introduction, my wife uh, Elizabeth and I have actually known Robin and her family for, for many years. And in fact, the crib that both Herdman children slept in as babies uh, was gifted to us from Robin uh, after her family was done with it. So uh, thank you again for that introduction, Robin, and, and also for the crib. Uh, it's, it's, it's a pretty good reminder of how close-knit a community we have here in Cleveland. Um, and I also want to thank all of you for being here today. I see a lot of familiar faces, uh, some I don't know, but um, I'm glad that you've all set aside time today uh, to talk about the topics that we're going to discuss here. Uh, a conversation about how we are going <clears> to <throat> make our community safer, steps that we can take to reduce violent crime. And I'm especially, uh, especially encouraged because, as you'll hear, I think there is a place for each of us in this fight. It is truly an honor to be on this stage. I am a student of history, but I don't think I had a full appreciation of the people who have appeared on this stage uh, until I was sitting in the back room here. Uh, and so I'm very honored to be here. 
and I also want to thank the City Club for hosting me uh, at this talk. So I just mentioned our children. Um, uh, my wife Elizabeth is, uh, is here as well. And so we have two children. Uh, they're not yet old enough to drive to school, thankfully. So what that means is every morning when I'm in town, I, uh, like today, I woke up, uh, helped make the kids breakfast, and stood with them outside our house before the uh, school bus arrived to take them to school. <clears throat> and I'm laughing and looking at Elizabeth right now because I've probably painted too idyllic of a setting for you. Um, and, and honestly, today was a little hectic after them having two days off uh, because of the polar vortex. So, um, but uh, you know what, what that moment means for me <clears throat> while we're waiting for the school bus to arrive is it's a moment to reflect on the fact that we have all the same anxieties that all parents have about limiting screen time, about predators who are lurking in the cyber uh, realm and in the real world, about the possibility, God forbid, of a school shooting. And this last one is remote, uh, I admit, but it is a real fear. And I'm not ashamed to say that when I put our kids on the bus in the morning, there's always a little bit of worry that accompanies this daily ritual. You know, overall, our family is incredibly fortunate. We are raising our children in a safe community with great schools, and I'm aware that that is not the case for every family in the district served by our office, which covers the northern half of Ohio. So I also know that the anxiety that I feel when our children leave my sight is only a fraction of the worry that many other parents have. They worry about violence, they worry about drugs, and they worry about whether they will see their child again. Almost exactly two years, to go, two years ago today, as Robin said, I was recommended to be the U.S. Attorney by Senator Portman and Senator Brown. And that recommendation ended one interview process, uh, and then it marked the beginning of another interview process, one that ultimately led to a nomination by the President and confirmation by the Senate. And in that process, I was asked many questions many times about why I wanted this job and what I hoped to accomplish. And at the time, I was making a, a very nice living as a partner in a small mom-and-pop law firm, you heard, Jones Day. Um, it turns out I spent about half the year in that job waking up in hotel rooms in Asia and Europe. Uh, but it was a great job that offered a very rewarding challenge, uh, day in and day out. But as great as that job was, the position of U.S. Attorney was unique because it offered me an opportunity to influence and change our community in an overwhelmingly positive way. So when I was asked why I want the job that I currently have, this is the answer that I gave. And you might think that it's corny or self-serving, but this is the absolute truth. I wanted this job because I wanted to make the Northern District of Ohio safer for everyone who lives here. For people in Cleveland, for people in the eastern part of our district near Youngstown, for people in the western part of our district near Toledo, and for everybody in between. <clears throat> so that's the answer to the question. Why did you want this job? I said yes because I wanted to play a part in making our region safer. Safer from gun violence, safer from narcotics and overdoses that have caused so much pain and heartbreak in our community, safer from people who want to use violence to spread hateful ideology of any sort. I am, by training and trade, a prosecutor. I will admit to that. Uh, but I've also spent enough time in the military to know that a sense of mission is critical in achieving any goals. The Air Force, for instance, has a great mission. When, when they lay out their mission statement, it's pretty simple. Fly, fight, win, three words. There's more to it than that, but that mission statement covers what the Air Force does and what it seeks to achieve. And I've tried to do the same in our office, so here it is. The men and women of the United States Attorney's Office are faithful to the law, 
pursue the facts, and protect the public. It's not quite as punchy as the Air Force mission statement, I know. I'll confess my marketing budget is a little, uh, little lower than the Pentagon's, um, but I think it still works. And these three principles cover everything that we do. And they also cover what we aim to achieve. The first one, we are faithful to the law. We take the law as it's given to us. We don't make the law and we certainly don't break the law. We follow the law and we believe that the law is the path that will ultimately lead us and society to a better future. In a letter to our nation's first Attorney General, Edmund Randolph, newly elected President George Washington wrote, the true administration of justice is the firmest pillar of good government. That saying is now enshrined above the entrance to the New York State Supreme Court in Lower Manhattan on Foley Square, right near the DA's office where I first started my legal career. It's just as true now as it was in 1789, and it neatly summarizes the central place that the rule of law plays for our office. The second part of our mission statement is probably the simplest to understand, but it's the hardest to practice. We pursue the facts. We pursue, that's an action verb. We go after the facts through grand jury subpoenas, wiretaps, witness interviews, cooperation agreements. We find out what happened and we get as close to the truth in the form of provable facts as we possibly can. In another nod to our founders, John Adams is often quoted as saying, during his defense of a British soldier uh, uh, involved in the Boston Massacre, that facts are stubborn things. And whatever may be our wishes, our inclinations, or the dictates of our passions, they cannot alter the states of facts and evidence. I take great comfort in that quote and what it means for our work. Facts lead us to conclusions, not the other way around. And it's how I've always approached the cases that I've worked, whether it was working street crimes, uh, investigated by the NYPD, or working on international terrorism investigations with the FBI. And the final part of our mission statement, the part that I will discuss for the remainder of my time here today, is that we protect the public. This has always been the core mission of the Department of Justice. In fact, the department was born fighting. When it was founded in 1870, the postbellum South was engulfed with violence against newly freed slaves and those who supported them. The Ku Klux Klan was waging a brutal campaign of murder and calculated political violence. And the brand new Department of Justice, led by a Southern Attorney General named Amos Ackerman, set about deliberately dismantling the Ku Klux Klan through the same methods that we use today. Convening grand juries, flipping cooperators, collecting documents, and imprisoning those responsible. Thus, the Department of Justice has always been about protecting the public, especially the most vulnerable in our society, and it always will. Now, based on what I just said and the fact that I'm essentially a career prosecutor, you will not be surprised to hear that I think what the Department of Justice does best is targeted and aggressive enforcement of the law, which often inv involves seeking appropriate penalties, including long prison sentences, for those who deserve them. But I also appreciate the old cliche that when your only tool is a hammer, every problem looks like a nail. In almost everything we do, prosecution is a tool, but it is only one tool. Prosecution is definitely a hammer, but not every problem is a nail. Crime is often a symptom of a much larger and deeply rooted societal problem. Sometimes the seeds were planted decades ago, if not longer. In many ways, what law enforcement deals with is a microcosm for society's greatest challenges, including Greater Cleveland's. All of mankind's rights and wrongs 
the stories of humanity's collective struggle, they are found in the criminal justice system, which might be why people can't get enough of documentaries, television programs, and even podcasts dealing with the criminal justice system. And I understand why. In my many years as a prosecutor, I have seen the absolute worst of what humanity has to offer, and I've seen the absolute best of what humanity has to offer. I've seen shocking examples of the horrible things that people will do to one another, and I've seen unexpected examples of kindness and courage. The criminal justice system displays humankind's yin and yang on one stage. And if we truly want to eliminate crime, or at least significantly reduce it, we have to play to both of these impulses. We, we must restrain and punish those who break the law and harm others. To put it bluntly, we have to stop the bad guys. And yes, there are bad guys and gals in this world. But we also have to uplift the good guys and encourage the best parts of our community who are working to eliminate those underlying social ills, whether we're talking about joblessness, an unstable home, mental illness, addiction, or trauma, just to name a few. When we're talking about modern day cops and robbers, the good guys aren't just police officers and federal agents. They're also counselors and social workers and teachers. It's a huge challenge, but it's one that we can meet. I'm an optimist by nature. You have to be if you wanna wade into this fight, and I'm here on the stage to tell you we can do it. Others have stood at this podium and presented our region with a message of doom and gloom, and perhaps some of that is justified. But we do have the assets here in this community and state to overcome these challenges. I say that not as an unabashed homer and cheerleader for Cleveland, although I am, but as someone who has spent a lot of time in other parts of the United States and the world. Yes, we have very real challenges, but we also have very real assets that we can leverage to make our region stronger, safer, and healthier. So how are we going to do it? What is the way forward? Well, fortunately, when it comes to crime reduction, I personally don't have to reinvent the wheel. The centerpiece of the Department of Justice's crime reduction effort is called Project Safe Neighborhoods, and it works. In October of 2017, then Attorney General Jeff Sessions rolled out the reinvigorated Project Safe Neighborhoods, or PSN. The original PSN program was launched nationwide in the early 2000s, and its comprehensive approach to crime reduction led to drops in violent crime rates of up to 40% in some areas. Now, you may think that PSN is only focused on enforcement, locking people up for as long as possible. I'll forgive you if that was your initial reaction, but I'm here to tell you it's not just about enforcement. Yes, enforcement is an essential component of any PSN program, but so is prevention. In fact, they're both pillars of the department's PSN initiative, and it's easy to see why. So in just about every aspect of life, prevention and early intervention are key. It's true if you've got a sore knee. It's certainly true if you have a legal problem. It's true as we grapple with the drug overdose epidemic. And it's true when it, turns, when it comes to violent crime. An ounce of prevention is worth at least a pound of cure. And we all have an interest in preventing violent crime, regardless of where we live. That is certainly the case for me as U.S. Attorney, because our office has an obligation to all six million residents who live in Ohio's northern 40 counties. But it's also the case for everyone in Northeast Ohio because crime is not confined to a few neighborhoods in Cleveland. Just as jobs and residents have moved into the suburbs, so has crime. Ask Lakewood Police, who investigated a string of armed carjackings there last year. Our office prosecuted a series of armed robberies at banks and stores in Lake County last year. And four years ago, three people were murdered at a barbershop in Warrensville Heights. 
Violence that stemmed from a gang feud. Yes, violent crime is a problem for everyone in our district. That's especially so if you consider the financial impact it has on Cleveland, our, our region's largest city and our engine of economic growth. And actually, academic research has provided us with data about why people commit crime, violent or otherwise. They are all the reasons that you suspect. Lack of economic opportunity, repeating behavior seen in the home and neighborhood, exposure to violence and childhood trauma, a view that dealing drugs and robbing stores is a more realistic avenue to economic gain than a nine-to-five job. With that comes a fatalism, though, that affects all aspects of everyday life and leads to someone pulling a gun when they feel disrespected. Obviously, we have to expose our people to other opportunities, and the earlier the better. That is why the work of Mayor Jackson and Tracy Martin Thompson is so vitally important. For those of you who do not know Tracy Martin Thompson, she is the mayor's chief of prevention, intervention, and opportunity for youth and young adults, a position in the mayor's cabinet addressing violence from a public health perspective. We know that juvenile crime has an outsized impact in our largest cities, especially in Cleveland. This is why the mayor and Chief Martin Thompson have committed to working hard to create youth employment opportunities, activities, mentorship programs. These efforts will give our young people real, tangible alternatives to unproductive and sometimes criminal outcomes. And out of our office, we offer a similar effort. Stand Together Against Neighborhood Crime Every Day, or STANCE, is a program that our office has administered for many years. It is based on an approach that gives equal weight to crime prevention, enforcement, and other strategies, such as coming up with thoughtful reentry programs for people returning from prison. We meet monthly at our office with law enforcement, social service providers, and community members coming together to work as a team on these issues. And one member of our stance executive committee is the Boys and Girls Club of Cleveland. Visiting Ron Soder and his team, and most importantly the kids at the Broadway Club, is usually the best part of my job. What Ron and his team do is they help kids bridge gaps, especially in the after-school setting, where parents and extended family no longer can. Providing a safe space for kids to play and do their homework, to burn off energy and get personalized tutoring, giving them an outlet for their artistic and creative impulses, and exposing them to the broader world. If you want to know why I'm optimistic about our ability to change Cleveland in a positive way, it's because of places like the Boys and Girls Club. You cannot walk away from one of their clubs without a smile on your face and most importantly hope for those kids. Now another critical component of the Project Safe Neighborhoods program is partnerships. Federal law enforcement like the FBI and the ATF work with local police to help support their violent crime investigations, often providing equipment or expertise or advanced technical support. And if the facts and evidence line up and everyone involved believes it makes sense, we will take the defendant and prosecute them in federal court, where Congress has given us some additional tools, statutes, and penalties. What does this look like in Cleveland? <clears throat> well, it means that the FBI has assigned agents to work in the Cleveland Police Homicide Unit, it means projects like the one that we saw last spring and summer here in Cleveland, in which U.S. Marshals, DEA, ATF, and FBI agents, adult parole authority officers, and state troopers worked with Cleveland police to identify and investigate those people in our community who are the most violent, offenders responsible for the vast majority of the shootings, robberies, and murders in our neighborhoods. Our partnerships with our county and local prosecutors are also a critical part of the PSN program. We are at our best in law enforcement when we set aside disputes and offer the most appropriate result for our community. 
working with prosecutors like Mike O'Malley here in Cuyahoga County, Kerry Howard in the city of Cleveland, Dennis Will in Lorain County, and Dennis Watkins in Trumbull County, just to name a few. Time and again, we have looked at an offense and an offender and determined whether prosecution is best venued in federal, state, or local court. Now, on the federal level, our violent crime reduction efforts are most effective when they are focused on firearms. This means either firearms used in violent crimes or firearms possessed by people who are just not allowed to have them. Federal law makes it illegal for anyone convicted of a felony to possess a firearm, but it is also illegal for anyone convicted of domestic violence to own a firearm, even if that domestic violence conviction was a misdemeanor. For the past few months, our prosecutors have been working with our partners to identify these people and, when appropriate, bring federal charges. Domestic violence enforcement is a new area of focus for our office, and it has traditionally been underserved by federal law enforcement. Ladies and gentlemen, I am convinced that these, these firearms prosecutions are exercises in homicide prevention. Whether they involve a convicted murderer who is on the streets and possessing a firearm that he is not allowed to have, or whether they involve a person who tried to buy a shotgun at a pawn shop when he was under indictment for assaulting his girlfriend and subject to an active order of protection, these firearms cases prosecuted by the United States Attorney's Office will save lives. These cases are also important for officer safety. In my relatively brief time as U.S. Attorney, there have already been three police officers who were shot and killed in the line of duty while responding to domestic violence calls. That's three too many. And if just one of our federal domestic violence prosecutions reduces the risk to our police officers, then it was worth the effort. We've filed about a dozen of these cases uh, focused on domestic violence in the recent months, and we expect a pilot project with the Cleveland Police as well as efforts with the Domestic Violence and Child Advocacy Center will result in more cases over the next year. Effective enforcement also means policing smarter, not just harder. In just a few weeks, police departments from the eight largest cities in our district will submit proposals on how to use nearly a half million dollars designated for Northern Ohio by the Justice Department through Project Safe Neighborhoods. Last month, we met with all of them, as well as with some schools and other community partners about projects they are considering to collect and analyze data to identify violent crime problems. The goal is to implement evidence-based practices to overcome problems identified by experience, but also through a careful analysis of the data. Yes, we're talking analytics. It's no longer the sole domain of the Browns front office or the Moneyball crowd. <laughs> the one option on the table is uh, performing what's called a group audit in participating cities, in which uh, an academic partner will come in, they'll work with police and community members to identify gangs, where they operate, what activities they're involved in. And usually when we talk about street gangs, people think of movies from my childhood, with the Bloods and the Crips engaged in shootouts over drug territory. We don't really have those well-known national gangs here in Northeast Ohio today, thankfully. What we do have are groups of young guys who grew up in the same neighborhood, maybe related to each other, and who are often armed. They also sometimes engage in violent crime, such as carjackings, armed robberies, retaliatory shootings. They are a relatively tiny uh, segment of the population, very tiny percentage of the population, but are responsible for the vast majority of the violence that we see in our cities. And these groups pose an immediate danger to each other, obviously, but also to innocent people caught in the crossfire. And there's just too many examples to even list here of that. So we need prevention if we want to reduce violent crime. But I'll say this very clearly, there is no prevention strategy for those who point a loaded gun at someone. They simply need to go to prison. 
During the fiscal year that ended last fall, our office filed more violent crime indictments than have been charged since we started keeping track of this in 2004. And I believe, because I've looked at the data in this district, that seeking federal prison sentences for people who illegally use firearms, who commit carjackings, who rob banks, will over time reduce crime. Not necessarily because long, long federal prison sentences carry a deterrent effect, although I hope that they do, but because someone who is violent and carries a gun and is willing to use it during a crime needs to go away for a while. These are the people who are most likely to shoot someone or to be shot themselves. And we are starting to see results. Last year, overall homicides by firearm in Cuyahoga County were down 13%. And homicides of African Americans by firearm were down 25%. Firearm, firearms homicides, as homicides related to, to firearms, in the city of Cleveland were down 12%. Armed robberies were down 8%. During the month of May, when the law enforcement initiative that I described earlier was at its peak, there were two homicides in the entire city of Cleveland. This focus on firearms-related violence and the most violent offenders works. And our law enforcement partners deserve a tremendous amount of credit for these efforts. I'm happy to thank one of them, Chief Calvin Williams of Cleveland, in particular, for the outstanding work by the men and women under his command. As I've hopefully made clear, the Project Safe Neighborhoods program is a model that mixes prevention, aggressive enforcement, and community engagement, and I believe in it. I believe in it because it just makes sense. I also believe in it because we have seen it work when it comes to our community's long-running mass casualty event, the opioid and drug overdose epidemic. It is a topic that has justifiably been discussed and dissected locally and nationally, but the quick version is that years of prevention, public education, and outreach, combined with aggressive and innovative enforcement to disrupt the drug supply and lock up drug dealers, is starting to show results. It is way too early to celebrate, and the number of our friends and neighbors dying remains way too high, but the preliminary data indicates that last year there was about a 33% drop in the number of people who died from a drug overdose across this district, including a 23% drop here in Cuyahoga County. Some of the counties in our district witnessed a drop of 50%. That's half as many people as died the year before. By the only measure that counts, who lives and who dies, we may have turned the tide. And that crisis, which we are still in the midst of, has challenged law enforcement, the medical community, treatment providers, political leaders, and others to break out of their comfort zones to work together in combat combating an epidemic that constantly changes. It is my hope that we will do the same with violent crime. Law enforcement often resists change, but by adopting crime analysis and intelligence-led policing, we can be more surgical and precise in our approach. Yes, I have focused on violent crime in this talk. That was the point, after all. And yes, I speak frequently on overdoses. I have to focus on both of these topics. Between narcotics overdoses and deaths by firearms, we are losing thousands of fellow Ohioans every year. Our focus at the U.S. Attorney's Office has to be on the most fundamental part of our mission, protecting the public. Of course, though, we remain busy enforcing all of the Justice Department's priorities. None more vital than counterterrorism, and national security. Again, this is the most fundamental part of our mission, to protect the public, and protect the public we have. A few weeks ago in Toledo, the FBI's Joint Terrorism Task Force arrested three people involved in two separate plots. It was just a coincidence that they both took place in Northwest Ohio, and both came to a head on the same day. In one, a couple with an interest in mass shootings 
and Nazi literature wanted to engage in a killing spree at a bar in Toledo. That plan later took on added elements, but the constant in all the defendants' pl plots was killing people. Those two defendants, Elizabeth LeCron and Vincent Armstrong, have both been indicted for explosives and firearms charges. In the other case, a man wanted to replicate the horrible attack at the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh. He wanted to attack synagogues in Toledo on behalf of ISIS. He even said flatly that he wanted to kill a rabbi. That man, Damon Joseph, was just indicted this week for terrorism, hate crime, and firearms charges. These charges, which may be the first to combine international terrorism and civil rights offenses in the same case, offers a unique approach that addressed two vital areas of our department's work at the same time. I wish I could say it's the last such case we'll see in our nation, but I'm afraid that is very unlikely. And these are success stories too, because they offer another version of homicide prevention. We avoided what could have been horrific events through smart, deliberate law enforcement action. A few nights ago, I was at the Jewish Community Center in Beechwood, where our office, along with the FBI and our community partners, held a training attended by all faith traditions, Jewish, Muslim, Christian, Sikh, Hindu, and many others. This training was about securing and making safe houses of worship, as well as how to report hate crimes and suspicious activities. It's very unfortunate that we have to do it. We cannot deny that there is a threat, though. What we learned in, in that training was that denial is the first step toward inaction. What we can do in response is plan and be prepared. Now, I talked at the beginning about the mission of our office, the men and women of the United States Attorney's Office. We're about 170 strong. We're spread across four district offices. We have people from every background that you can imagine. Some of us went to law school. Some of us don't have a college degree. Some of us are first-generation Americans. Some of us are eighth-generation Ohioans. Some of us have children due in a few months, and some of us have children in college. We have white skin, black skin, brown skin, and every shade in between. Amongst our staff, you will find speakers of, of Spanish, Arabic, Romanian, Farsi, Albanian, and a dozen other languages. Those differences could tear us apart, but they don't. They don't because we are united in our mission. And as an office, we have been severely tested. Over the past several weeks, our employees went without a paycheck. And as if that wasn't enough, we didn't know when the next one would arrive. Despite not getting paid and not knowing when the next paycheck would come, our team showed up if they were allowed to come in and work day after day after day. And I want that to sink in for a moment. How many of you would go to work, be told by your employer that the paycheck you had earned was not coming, and then show back up the next day, let alone the next 35 days? Well, our people did. And believe me, they didn't do it for me. They didn't even do it for themselves. They did it for all of you. That is what it means to fight for something. That is what a sense of mission means. Now, on the first day that I addressed our office as US attorney, I talked about our mission. I laid it out for employees just as I have for you. And honestly, though, I think I'm probably the only one who remembers that. Uh, and that's because defining the mission of our office is not necessary for our folks, because they live it and breathe it. And the best evidence for that is what I just described to you about their extraordinary effort during the shutdown. What I do know they remember is what I said about a poster that has hung in my office for years. I know that because I talk about this poster all the time, and now you guys have to hear about it too. The poster hung on my wall when I was an assistant US attorney. It hung on my wall in private practice at Jones Day, and it hangs on my wall today as United States attorney. 
It's a World War II propaganda poster featuring the face of Winston Churchill, and it says, deserve victory. Deserve victory. Now, my first day as U.S. Attorney, I told our office that early in my career, I would look at that poster and I was really focused on the victory part, the winning, the sound of guilty when a verdict is read. But guess what I learned? I didn't win every case. Some of those losses I deserved to lose, but some I deserved to win. Some, uh, what, what I learned from those losses was that when you're a prosecutor, you can't put victory first. You have to be deserving first. And then if victory follows, so much the better. If you deserve to win as a prosecutor, then the verdict doesn't matter quite as much. It means that you've done everything right, you've looked out for everyone's interest in the case, and deserving to win is an end unto itself. And when you're a prosecutor, there is no such thing as a win that you didn't deserve. That is a loss. There's far too much at stake for us in a case for us to win one that we don't deserve. There's too much at stake for our community, too much at stake for the law enforcement agencies who worked on the case, too much at stake for the crime victims, and yes, even too much at stake for the defendant. So we have to deserve whatever victories we achieve. And believe me, our people deserve the wins we see in court. They deserve the wins we see in our community, and they deserve all of our thanks for what they do on our behalf, sometimes for free. And by the way, several of them are here today, and these tables over here. Now that same principle applies to our community when we're talking about crime reduction. We collectively have to deserve victory first and then find out whether we won. It's counterintuitive, I know, especially coming from a lawyer. But if we're really serious about crime reduction, we have to address that yin and the yang. We have to have this take place on two levels. The first level is what law enforcement in Greater Cleveland and across the country do every day. Smart, focused enforcement. Seeking incarceration for those who deserve it and put our community at risk. Remember what I said before, stopping the bad guys. We have to do that. Those efforts, though, must be combined with projects that are focused on preventing crime, as well as helping find opportunities for our youth and other people who don't have all the advantages we may have. This is the second part, helping the good guys. But the deeper challenge of crime reduction is directed at all of us. Whether you wear a badge or prosecute cases or volunteer at the Boys and Girls Club, or look out for the neighborhood kids who live down the street and get off the bus before their parents get home from work. It's a challenge to every single person who lives in Northeast Ohio. What we need from you is not necessarily money, but time. Your time. Time to devote to just one child who is not your own. Time to mentor and teach and tutor. Time to show them that they matter to you and to the world. Funding is always important, but right now what we need is people. Volunteer at a youth organization, or through the mayor's office or at a school. Take the most precious commodity we all have, our time, and offer it up for free to the kids of our community. I spoke earlier about documentaries and television programs on crime. One of the best recent shows, in my opinion, is the first season of True, De True Detective. The first season of True <laughs> Detective. That's the one with Matthew McConaughey and Woody Harrelson. So I'm not ruining the ending for any of those of uh, you who haven't finished binge watching it yet, but I, I, I promise this. But in the very last episode of, of the first season, there's a scene where Rust, the character played by Matthew McConaughey, and Marty, the character played by Woody Harrelson, are outside looking up at the night sky. And Rust looks up and he recalls it when he, when he was a kid in Alaska, he used to look up at each individual star and make up stories about them. But he's had time to think about it. And now he realized there's really just one story, the oldest story, light versus the darkness. 
Marty, again, Woody Harrelson, looks up at the night sky, he laughs, and he says, well, it looks like the darkness has a lot more territory. <laughs> and Russ says, yeah, you know what, I guess you're right. <clears throat> but as they move away, Russ says to Marty, hey, you know what? You're looking at it the wrong way. Once there was only darkness. If you ask me, the light's winning. In law enforcement, we deal with darkness all the time. We can get lost in it. We can often look at darkness the wrong way. We can forget about that light, the light that's represented by the good guys, by great people like those who work in our United States Attorney's Office, by great people like those who work for local police and federal agencies, like great people who work for community service organizations, like those who have devoted not just a spare hour or two to our kids, but their entire lives, the good guys. The light is winning. The light will win. And no matter what that victory looks like in the end, we will deserve it if every single one of us plays a part in it. Thank you. Today, we are listening to a forum with Justin Herdman, the United States Attorney for the Northern District of Ohio. We're about to begin the audience Q&A. We welcome questions from everyone, City Club members, guests, students, or those of you joining us via our radio broadcast or live stream. If you'd like to tweet a question, please tweet it at the City Club, and our staff will try to work it into the program. Holding the microphones today are Marketing and Outreach Coordinator Julia Wong, and Director of Programming and uh, Director of Programming Stephanie Jansky. May we have the first question, please? Good afternoon. I'm Colleen Cotter from the Legal Aid Society. And my question is, um, could you comment on the role of constitutional policing in reducing violent crime and also the, your office's priorities in the implementation and enforcement of the consent decree regarding the city of police? Yeah, so uh, the consent decree that's in place uh, uh, between the city of Cleveland and, and the Department of Justice is actually the first case that I entered an appearance on as a U.S. attorney, uh, personally entered an appearance on it. So it is it absolutely critical for us to see this through. And I think what you can see three years into the process now is it, it's a good story. Uh, we've got, as I said, we've got very favorable numbers when it comes to reduction in violent crime. But we've also, on the flip side, we've seen a reduction in uses of force by our police officers. We've seen uh, a reduction in officer injuries. We've seen uh, a reduction in incidents that involve members of our community getting hurt. So it, it, on that measure alone, it has been a successful process. Um, but there's also other parts, too. I mean, when we talk about effective policing, the consent decree provided an avenue for the police department to obtain and achieve a level of technological enhancement that they previously had not been able to get. They've got new equipment. They've got new data, data terminals in their, in their vehicles. They've got new vehicles in some instances. Uh, that's a really critical piece of, of what has made them a much more effective law enforcement organization at this point in time. The other part to it also is, you know, I'm, uh, it was mentioned that I, I used to be an assistant district attorney in Manhattan, and I can't tell you how many times we had cases that involved people who were in some sort of mental or health crisis. And the training that has been provided to the police department on crisis intervention training is groundbreaking, first of all. It's kind of a model for the rest of the nation. Um, and that alone has reduced the number of use of force in incidents, I believe, because I saw it time and time again as an assistant DA in Manhattan 
where you'd have somebody who was in crisis who interacted with the police and the outcome was, was negative because of the crisis that that person was in and the lack of training that the police had in the early 2000s. So we've, we've come a long way. Thank you for a great speech and for all your great work and, you. and that of all your, your people. Uh, do you have a sort of a philosophy or an approach as, as it relates to maybe not the, the really bad guys who you allude to, and we know <clears throat> they're out there, and, and just sort of carve them out, but sort of the, the, the gentle souls who find themselves convicted and with a record and in, in, in jail as it relates to sentencing or perhaps uh, expungement or uh, getting free of uh, felony records and things like that. I know it's a, a, a broad question, mm -hmm. but so many folks in the community have found themselves in the criminal system. They're basically decent people and their lives are effectively ruined by virtue of their record. Do you have any sort of view or philosophy on that? Uh, well, I, I mean, I will say, you know, my, my feeling about this as a prosecutor, th and this is one of the few times where I'll actually relay a personal feeling when it involves the law, because it, it really ju just does go to, to my feeling about it. When somebody has served their sentence and is released, you know, I've always felt that that person needs to be in the best position that they can to contribute to society again. Um, now, I can offer my personal opinion on this because I'm not really involved as a prosecutor on the back end of that unless somebody violates uh, supervised release or parole or whatever the case may be. Um, and, but I do think it's an important conversation for us to have about what the long-term effect of not only that prison sentence is on people, but what the effect of the, the felony conviction can be. And, and I'm open to, to that conversation. It's probably too, too large of a conversation to have here today. But I, I think it is something that, you know, certainly if you look at the First Step Act and the, um, what's laid out in the First Step Act with respect to reducing prison time and offering uh, re-entry programs for people who are in the Bureau of Prisons, the Federal Bureau of Prisons, I think that that sentiment exists clearly uh, in Washington, D.C., and, and we're going to start seeing the effects of it soon enough. And I think it will be, be measured, too. That's the important part uh, that I've seen in the First Step Act is that there are uh, specific outlays laid aside for measuring the impact of some of these re-entry programs. Mm -hmm. uh, we have nothing but ultimate respect for him within our Cleveland Clinic community and spend quite a bit of time in, time, in, in terms of volunteer time, et cetera, et cetera. But in concert to what you said, they do need funds because there needs to be a thousand Ron Schroeders and there needs to be a thousand Boys and Girls Club throughout not only Cleveland area but all throughout our country because that's where this begins. This mm -hmm. begins with these kids who come home and have nothing to, to go home to. So that's just a comment. The question for you is um, in regard to the buyback program. Do you think there is value in uh, gun buyback programs that go on throughout the community? Uh, yeah, I mean, that's not something that we typically um, will sponsor. Usually the police department sponsors that. L look, anytime we're getting firearms off the street, I think that that's a positive thing from a law enforcement perspective. I can't tell you how many police officers I've talked to since I became U.S. attorney who will mention the fact that you know, more and more they will make a traffic stop and where it may have just previously been a moving violation or maybe somebody had some illicit substances in the car, more and more they're seeing firearms in the cars. And look, anytime you've got a firearm, and this is why we focus so heavily on prosecution of people who have firearms and aren't supposed to have them, anytime you've got a firearm involved, that is a potential homicide waiting to happen. So um, 
any effort to get guns off the street, I, I uh, would be in favor of. I'm sorry. Um, what have you and your colleagues seen as the effects of the increasing legalization of marijuana? Uh, so we, let me say at the outset, we are prohibited uh, under federal law from uh, enforcing, uh, so marijuana is a controlled substance. We are prohibited under federal law from enforcing the Controlled Substances Act against anyone who is participating in a state-sponsored uh, or state-legalized regime. So for instance, medical marijuana here in Ohio. Um, but I will tell you the, the, the effect that we've seen out of, particularly in the western part of the United States where there's full legalization, full unlimited grow, uh, maybe less uh, regulation around uh, the sale and distribution of marijuana out there under the state systems. We have seen massive amounts of cheap, potent marijuana that has been uh, filtered, it's come through the black market and it's ended up in Ohio. And, I, and I, we will continue to investigate and prosecute those cases. And it's real simple, why? Because you're almost always talking about some organized group of people uh, who are making millions of dollars, in some cases, off of this illicit marijuana. And so they have to launder that money. They have to do something with it. You can't just have millions of dollars in cash laying around, although sometimes they do. Um, and the other thing that they do when you have that much marijuana, which is fungible into cash, and you've got that much cash laying around, is there are always firearms present in those operations. So we're going to continue to investigate and prosecute diverted marijuana out of open and operating state regimes. Uh, and certainly if there was any diversion here in Ohio under a medical marijuana system, we'd be, um, we'd be in a position to investigate and prosecute that as well. Uh, so um, thanks for your remarks about what's going on in our community. Uh, I wanted to ask you a question about your role uh, nationally, uh, because as many of us here know, you are uh, have been selected to be one of the chief federal uh, criminal justice and Department of Justice policymakers. You're a member of the, the Attorney General's Advisory Committee. I'm wondering if you can just give us a preview or some thoughts on some things that might be coming up that are important that we ought to have our, our eyes on in the national conversation about what the Department of Justice does. Uh, it's a great question coming from a former U.S. Attorney and uh, Attorney General Advisory uh, Committee member. That's in some serious inside baseball, too, so I, you get credit for that, Steve. Um, you know, this, this actually would be probably an easier question for me to answer in a couple of months. We obviously are expecting a new Attorney General here shortly uh, in Bill Barr, and we're, uh, we're very enthusiastic about uh, getting his leadership. Um, but I, I think what, what probably will not change, uh, I suspect, um, will, will be the same, is a focus on the Department's efforts to uh, reduce opioid use and opioid diversion out of an open and operating and, and perfectly otherwise lawful healthcare system. So I think there are going to be things that are going to be happening nationwide where um, you, will, you will start to hear more and more about it. We've done that successfully out of our district where we were the first in the nation to use uh, the civil provisions under the Controlled Substances Act to actually prohibit prescribing from doctors. Um, and I think that you'll continue to see more focus placed by the department on that particular problem. It's, a, it's certainly a priority of the administration, reducing the number of overdose deaths, uh, and it will continue to be a, a very high-level priority of the Department of Justice. That, that, for sure, I can, I feel comfortable saying that that will be, continue to be something on the national level you'll see, Steve. Hello. My name Hi. is Normante Elson. I go to John Adams College and Career Academy. And my question is, with the corruption found in the police force and lack of resources in jails have for our inmates, how do you get the community to believe in our plan, in, in your plan? Okay. 
Uh, it's a great question. Thank you for asking it. And you know, it's, it is something that we, police officers will say, it's something that they constantly struggle with. Um, making sure that the community feels safe approaching them, uh, engaging them, asking for help. It's a pretty basic thing to expect uh, from a police officer is that somebody feels comfortable enough going up to a police officer and asking for help. I mean, for me and, and our kids, they know if they get lost, if they get uh, uh, somehow I lose track of them in the mall or at a county fair or something, they should find somebody in uniform, find a police officer. And if that level of trust, that basic level of trust doesn't exist in the community, we have to do everything we can to fix it and to work on it. So we, we do have a couple of things that we're working on currently. Uh, one of the things that we've considered doing, uh, and I, I'm pretty sure that this will be operational soon, um, the shutdown affected more than just us getting our paychecks. Uh, but we really are interested in creating a law enforcement academy for younger people in Cleveland. Uh, people who may have even a fleeting interest in a future law enforcement or public safety career. And that'll give us an opportunity to not only learn more about the kids, but for the kids to learn more about us and to find out that, yeah, you know what, we like watching basketball games too, we like watching football games, we like playing video games. Uh, that's all stuff that we, we have in common. And there, there are, there's much more in common between us in 2019 uh, than there is even between you know, people who are my, you know, my grandfather, for instance. I mean, I can talk to you about playing Madden probably, right? I can talk to you about playing FIFA soccer or something like that. You know, my grandpa who's passed away now, he would have no idea what I was talking about if I was talking to him about that. So I think that there are a lot of things that we have in common. We just gotta focus on them and get ourselves in a situation where we can openly discuss them and, and feel free to voice what our concerns are. So stay tuned for that. I'm, I'm really hopeful that that's gonna happen at some point soon. The last questioner um, talked about the question of trust. Mm -hmm. And one thing that uh, I perceive to be critical to the trust between the community and law enforcement is enforcement of uh, civil rights laws. And there is the perception that the Justice Department has moved away from enforcement on civil rights laws. Can you speak to uh, whether or not that perception is accurate and how we should be perceiving uh, the Justice Department's enforcement of civil rights laws. Sure. Uh, yes, it is still critical. And, and I'll use the example that I just mentioned in the speech, but I think that, that there are other examples that I'll talk about in a second too. You know, um, I can tell you that the civil, rights, um, uh, the, the civil rights division in Washington was very responsive to the idea of taking a case where you had a very clear international terrorism case uh, and also talking about whether or not we could charge an attempted hate crime. And they were very open to that, and, and in fact, I think, you know, it would not have happened clearly without high-level support in the department for charging this particular individual with both a hate crime and uh, material support to international terrorism crime. Um, but, you know, across the district, if you look, and, and not all of this gets the, some of the coverage that you, you might otherwise think, but um, we have continued to prosecute, even since I've been U.S. Attorney, we have prosecuted police officers, we have prosecuted jail officials, uh, we, um, we, we continue to look into that area. It's, it's, it is absolutely essential. And we don't get any disagreement from our law enforcement partners in this either. They know that there are potential violations that are going on or, or that, that could be committed, and they want to make sure that that is dealt with, and they prefer that it be dealt with on the federal level um, because we have the tools, we have the experience, we have the training to handle these kind of cases. And out of, out of our office, um, uh, thanks very much in part to former U.S. Attorney Dettelbach, we've got people who are very experienced in prosecuting civil rights cases, and, and they, they're not lacking for work at this point in time. Um, so it continues to be an area that we're gonna, we're, you'll, you'll probably hear more about it uh, as we go forward, um, and we continue to push certain initiatives. For instance, um, 
We've pushed a sexual harassment and housing initiative that's focused on uh, civil rights of tenants who are uh, harassed by their landlords, who are subjected to all kinds of you know, horrifying conduct. Uh, we think that housing stability is a re re really critical component to what we need to do on the prevention side. And so anywhere where we can marry up an interest in the civil rights with what we think is, is community safety, we're going to go after those cases. So that, that sexual harassment and housing initiative has been up for about a year now, and um, uh, it's been very productive so far. Uh, Mary Ann Crampton with Moms Demand Action for Gun Sense in America. Hello. Hello. Uh, thank you for your initiative, your remarks, and the initiative to protect the victims of domestic violence by enforcing the gun regulations that have been in place for decades. Can you elaborate a little bit about the barriers um, that exist uh, to enforcing uh, these laws uh, to pre prevent homicides? Um, yeah, well, we. Like I said at the beginning, I mean, we, we, we work with the tools that we have, the statutes that are available to us. Um, and what we can do is, I mean, we literally will go through the U.S. Code and say, okay, here's, you know, Title 18, Section 922 of the United States Code. That's our, the primary uh, firearm, prohibited persons uh, possessing a firearm statute that we use. And we'll look for opportunities to see if there are other things that we need to do programmatically or from an initiative standpoint to fit into certain, of, certain subsections there because we know that those firearms who are possessed by people who are prohibited from possessing them, uh, they are far more likely to be used in a crime of violence than any other firearm, um, particularly when you're talking about domestic violence. That was one area that just jumped off the page at us as something that was, we just had, had not done enough historically in my opinion and we really wanted to focus on that and it's not something that you typically see out of a U.S. attorney's office where, where people who possess a firearm in a domestic violence setting will be prosecuted. But we're actually actively going out and trying to find cases that fit. Um, and it is all about that particular firearm possessed by that offender. Uh, statistically, is much more likely to be used either against the domestic violence victim or, like I said, against law enforcement. Um, so I don't, it's not really a barrier. It's, it's, it's what we have to work with. We have to be faithful to the law and we have to take the law as it's given to us. And leadership. My question is, can you share with us your views about the criminal justice proposal that was on our ballot last November? Uh, probably not. Um, it's, uh, it's both uh, overcome by events uh, and it would be inappropriate for me to, to uh, talk about it, honestly. But it's, look, that, um, I got asked that question a lot during the, the election season uh, and it really was not my place to weigh in on potential impacts of state law. We had plenty of other people who were involved in the criminal justice system who were out there doing it. Uh, and it's not a statute or anything else that, um, uh, th that I really could comment on. Uh, I just, and by the way, I don't do that about federal laws either. I mean, the, the one thing I've learned as a prosecutor is you don't talk about laws that might be in place. You just talk about the ones that you have on the books. That's the safest way to go. Uh, and to do anything else, I think, is really, it's, we're, not, we're kind of not staying in our lane as prosecutors if we do that. Today at the City Club, we have been listening to a forum with Justin Herdman, the United States Attorney for the Northern District of Ohio. Today's forum is the Lozick Law Enforcement Forum, made possible by a generous grant from the Catherine L. and Edward A. Lozick Foundation. We're delighted to have Dale Cotterlick, Program Director for the Foundation, with us today. We appreciate your continued support for City Club programming. 
The community partner for today's forum is the Cleveland Metropolitan Bar Association. Support for student participation in City Club forums comes from KeyBank and the William M. Weiss Foundation with additional support from the donors you'll find listed in today's program. We thank all of you for being here today, and that brings us to the end of today's forum. Thank you, Mr. Herdman. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. This forum is now adjourned. For information on upcoming speakers or for podcasts of the City Club, go to cityclub.org. Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC and the Raskin Family Fund, with additional funding from Robert Conrad, Cleveland State University, the Chautauqua Institution, the Cleveland Clinic, and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated.